0: have a copy of God's Word, please turn to the fifth Psalm this morning, Psalm 5. I wasn't encouraged to make this plug, but just to uh, encourage you as it comes to your mind to pray for uh, the students at the university. This is Bible Conference Week, and uh, I just always think maybe it's being from the, the UK. I think it's a, a remarkable thing for uh, two and a half thousand students and whatever to to gather and sit under the Word of God for several days and multiple occasions. That's a rare thing, it doesn't happen in very many places. So I'll be praying for the Word. I want to also say to those who may be free uh, for part of the, the endeavor to pray through 24 hours from 7 p.m. on Thursday through to 7 p.m. on Friday, and uh, they're seeking to do that over on campus, but you can participate and help in that or in some way be a part of it through the uh, Zoom prayer call that Sermon Audio hosts. And if you have some free time, maybe even just a portion of time, and you want to join in for that extended season and protracted season of prayer, then I encourage you to do so. Such a need to pray. There's a real need to pray. When I say that, I recognize there's a need for us to learn to pray. There's such a loss in this aspect of the Christian life and there's much to be recovered. And so in recent weeks, we've been looking at the importance of God's Word. It has come up in various times, and I want to leave a different thought with you this morning from the fifth Psalm. In due course, we'll return to Hebrews, possibly next week, but for this morning, we're in the fifth Psalm. And I want to read the entirety of the Psalm with you, and then Preach the text before us. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. Amen. This is the very Word of God. God Himself has uttered this and given it to us, beloved. May you receive it and believe it as the very living Word of God. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank Thee for... How we've been encouraged and helped and admonished already today. We have expressed our desire that we might be delivered from our bent to sinning. We've expressed that early in the morning our song will rise to thee. Oh, help us. We are such inconsistent creatures. And we can be so expressive of our devotion here. And by and by, as the week unfolds, our heart is found to be afar off from our God. Oh, bind us to Thyself, we pray. Bind us, O God. Envelop us in Thy love. Constrain us to be in communion with Thee. Grant that every child of God may grow, truly grow, in the place of prayer. God, help us. What are we if we do not seek thy face? Are we not lost? Are we not just a shadow of what we should be? At very best, come. Come. to us now. Use thy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are told right at the beginning of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, in Mark 1, 35, In the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed we often find our Lord Jesus going to the place of prayer, seeking solitude that He might be alone and call upon His Father. And I have noted many times here in this pulpit before you how this is one of the remarkable things leading up to the cross because Judas knew precisely where to find Christ at a particular time It would seem because there was this habit while being in that vicinity of going at a certain time to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think it's safe to suggest that prayer from a practical standpoint is one of the most Christ-like things we can do. We wish to be Christ-like. There are few things more practical that exhibit Christ-likeness than prayer. Uh, thought of from a spiritual standpoint. What else develops us to be like Christ more than prayer? Oh, certainly the Word is is key in that, but many, many of the religious in the life of our Lord Jesus, they both prayed and they knew the Word, so there has to be more to it than this. There has to be a coming together of the truths in genuine communion and fellowship with God. And by that we are transformed and changed from glory into glory as by the Spirit of God. It is impossible to be like Jesus without prayer. And I think it impossible to maintain a credible Christian profession without prayer. And as we come to the psalm, this is the focus. Thinking of the subject of prayer, I preached A number of the Psalms, and in doing so I always try to see how we can frame it from the perspective of our Savior. In what way does it exhibit Him? Sometimes in the majesty of His His exalted position as the Messiah, we see it evidently expressed. Other times we see Him in His own experience of life, and other times with Him entering into the The mediation, the mediatorial work for sinners, sympathizing with them and communicating to them the grounds of forgiveness. But trying to see Christ is, of course, a helpful way to see any aspect of the Christian life. How did our Lord exhibit particular practices? How did He live? And it encourages us then to see this not merely as some spiritual discipline disconnected from our fellowship with Christ and our union to Christ, but as an expression of our union with Christ. And so, that's what I want to do this morning. I've titled the message, Beginning Each Day Like Jesus, Beginning Each Day Like Jesus. and I've divided the psalm up into five parts, and these are the headings. Jesus began His day in prayer. Jesus reflected on the will of God in prayer. Jesus prepared for worship by prayer. Jesus showed his dependence on the Spirit through prayer. And finally, Jesus anticipated righteous judgment in prayer. So we'll hang our thoughts on those headings as we look at the entirety of the fifth Psalm together with the Lord's help. Beginning each day like Jesus. Note first then, Jesus began his day in prayer. This encompasses the opening three verses, where we have this language. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. Have first to note the direction of his prayer in the morning, the direction of it. How is it directed? Verse 2 hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. Our Lord Jesus did not seek in the mornings when he arose a great while before day and brought himself to a solitary place where he could gather or gather himself or prepare himself for what lay ahead in that day. He didn't do so simply to find Him. you wouldn't find him simply in a, in a posture of meditation. In some kind of frame where he's looking towards the, the rising of the sun and trying to just bring peace into his being, he had clear direction. The burdens upon his heart, the needs of the day, the challenges of his ministry were brought and directed to the God of heaven. The God-man, Jesus Christ, came into this world and conducted his affairs continually in this experience of communion that was strengthened by and founded upon regular and frequent times of isolation and calling upon God. Amidst all of his enemies and trials, temptations and difficulties, amidst the weariness of the body, and the challenges of just living in a fallen world, He came and recognized that there is a sovereign. As we read in Psalm 45, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. One day our Lord Jesus, of course, would ascend and be seated with equality right there in that place. But as He lived on the earth, He lived with this dependence upon the sovereign King of heaven, rested in that awareness. He directed his prayers to one in a fashion where he recognized he was in control. Our Lord Jesus did not wake up every morning to come in a frame of anxiety and wonder, can you do anything, Lord? Is there something you can do for it? Is there is there any help? But rather with a, with a recognition of, of sovereignty, of heavenly governance, of divine providence, of the perfect will of the Father being exhibited. So he directed his prayer in this language, and it's good for us to do the same. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, my King and my God, filling our minds with titles like that, are a great aid to us, when the rest of our day we see man exalting himself in his own power. We see those that we work for exalting themselves and imagining themselves to somehow be in control of everything that happens in this world. The the little deification, the, the kind of godlike mentality that we see, whether it be in politics or economics or in any other area of life, we see this exaltation of man. And it behooves us then to frame ourselves each day with a recognition, no, there's one who truly and only is God and King. Also, the manner of it, it's the manner of his prayer. Well, first of all, it is spoken, verse 1, give ear to my words, give ear to my words, Again, this isn't some Eastern mystical practice where we just kind of try to empty our thoughts. God has given us the gift of language and prayer ought to be expressed by words. Now, that doesn't mean to say it has to be audible. Don't get me wrong. We have, of course, exemplified in Hannah, one who came and prayed and her lips moved, but there was no utterances that could be heard or audible to anyone around but nonetheless, she wasn't just sitting there in, again, a frame of, of kind of emptying her mind and trying to bring about some form of peace by self effort and letting go of all the burdens of her heart. The child of God comes with words. Our Lord Jesus came to the Father with words. Articulated the burdens, expressed the cares, gave language to the grief, the sorrow, the need. And, Christian, you're to do the same. You're to come to God in the morning, come to God any occasion, and frame your burden with language, with words. You have your cares. Yes, I know sometimes we struggle to find words. And we are told that the Spirit even understands those groanings. Yet at the same time, it is right for us to try and construct our burdens through words. And articulate what it is that we're dealing with. So it's spoken. We come to speak to truly talk to our God, to commune with our God with words. But it's not only spoken, it's sober. Consider my meditation. Consider my meditation, verse 1. So he, he is coming having thoughts and things he's already giving thought to. Contrasted with the kind of praying that doesn't really know where it's going or what the objective is or what you're trying to achieve, You've, you come carelessly you're not really thoughtful about what it is you're, you're aiming to do. Our Lord Jesus would wake up and be carrying burdens and cares and concerns and needs and aware of what lay ahead of him to some degree in the day ahead and so on and would, would articulate the meditation, the meditation of his heart, the thought that those inward musings, those, those careful, considered thoughts that, that come to us if we give space and time to it, if we're not constantly wired up to music and podcasts and other people's voices and all sorts of noise and distractions. Oh, child of God, recognize you must give place for your thoughts. Your thoughts need room to breathe. Before you even pray, you you need to give space to this. And many of the saints in the past, because of our tendency have found that they need to get to the place of prayer and remain silent for a period of time as they collect their thoughts before they begin to give words to their prayers. And I think that healthy practice, given how little thought we give before we come to the place of prayer. It was said of Robert Murray McShane that often around 50% of his time in prayer was spent in silence. What's he doing? He's, he's, he's constructing what his heart is dealing with, what his life is dealing with. He's musing and considering all of this before he gives language to his prayers. Now, I don't recommend you trying to spend half your time in silence. I think most of us are, are very easily distracted and would find that we would wander far too easily. But I do recommend just pausing before you begin to just Recite words that are familiar and language that you've imbibed over years of the practice of prayer, thinking carefully. It's part of the challenge I have, even as I lead publicly in prayer for you, is that thoughtfulness in coming to pray and not just saying the same old phrases and reciting Language that you you hear and so it might as well be that I just write my prayer and this is the weekly Lord's Day prayer. He prays on the Lord's Day and just, you know, it's pretty much the same word for word. Be a little more thoughtful. This is sober. This is recognizing even the discipline of prayer. The exercise of prayer is something we come to soberly. We come to thoughtfully. And then it it gets expressed in words. And it's also sincere, isn't it? Verse two, Hearken unto the voice of my cry. The voice of my cry. He's not coming in some empty way. There, there's a cry. The language of crying is used here. Why? Because there's a sense of burden. Our Lord Jesus prayed as a man with a burden. He didn't come again simply to, to do to say whatever he wanted to say in prayer and to be seen of men. But it was the expression of a burden. And he felt that burden. He felt the weight of his, the call upon his life, the place as being mediator of the people of God, of standing between God and men and being the only path of salvation. Hearken on to the voice of my cry. Well, there's a need for increased sincerity in our praying, is there not? That when God hears us, He He hears this kind of desperation. Now we can't we can't manufacture desperation. We can't just act like we're desperate. This, of course, is why the Lord brings hardship into our life, difficulty into the life. Because the pressure of the difficulty begins to, in the people of God, it's responded to with a sense of desperation. I mean, you've been there. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. The pressure comes, whether it be economic or health or family trouble or some other matter. That pressure that God has brought through and in his providence, that applied pressure begins to express then in desperation from your heart. You've been there. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But God needs to get our attention. That living in a world that has fallen is, is always... A desperate time. We read in the, in the reading of the law today about those who are insensible to judgment. That's what the catechism is addressing, this kind of incense, this numbness to what God is bringing into the life. And it, it is meant to drive us to Him so that we more fulfill the first commandment And instead, with His providence bringing this hardship that's meant to move us into desperate communion and intimate fellowship with our God, instead of it doing that, we become, we're insensible to it. We we reframe what God is doing in our lives. That we might release ourselves from the very purpose for which God has brought it into our life. He has brought it into our life to drive us to himself and we instead frame it differently again to ease the pressure and we're not helping ourselves. God is bringing us into a classroom, a refresher course, a reminder of why we're here. We're not here to eat, drink and be merry. We're children of God in fellowship with God. We're meant to live for His glory. Our mind, our vision filled with and conscious of the fact that we are to live for Him. Instead, these things come, meant to drive us into deeper fellowship, and and we, we reframe it. And that's not what we're meant to do. Our Lord Jesus, He responded to the times that were desperate. One of the occasions when He isolates Himself Is in the preparation for choosing the apostles. And he felt that. He felt the challenge of that. Now, we can begin to surmise as to what particular aspects of the choosing of the apostles he felt. Was it just lifting them up that they might be prepared? Was it just praying for them generally? Was it the thought that, I'm going to have to to bring in and fulfilment of Scripture and fulfilment of the will of the Father, I'm going to have to choose one who has a devil. That Judas has to be found in that mix. And he felt the burden of that. The voice of my cry. Child of God, the Lord wants to hear it. He wants to hear it. He wants to hear it. He those desperate times, those difficult occasions, those seasons of hardship, he is, he is, it's not just chance. It is your Father in heaven who loves you, who's orchestrating something that will drive you to himself. He wants to hear you cry. And the priority of it, the priority, we've seen the direction of our Savior's prayer, the manner of it, the priority of it. What does it say? Verse 3. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning, will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. Now here's where we see some practical aspects that convict us. There's a priority in prayer. We live in a world with competing priorities. Competing Priorities. Every one of us. the children here, they have competing priorities. There's, there are books that need to be read, homework that needs to be done, all sorts of things that you desire to do, and at every stage of life we have priorities, and they're always competing, competing. Our Lord Jesus was no different. He wasn't a man at ease, an idol. He had huge competing priorities and yet this was his practice. We already read it, the opening of his ministry. Designed to set the tone of what we could hazard was his practice through his life. As expressed here in this psalm. In the morning, my voice shall thou hear in the morning. We sang that hymn in part for that reason. Early in the morning my song shall rise to thee. Not allowing the competing forces to drown out the obligation and the privilege of seeking God, my voice shalt thou hear in the morning. Oh, how crucial this is! How crucial. You don't know, you don't know what day is going to open up to you another challenge you never prepared yourself for loss of a job, expressions of disobedience in your children, news of sickness other hardships, you, you are not given any forewarning concerning. And these things can derail our Christian life. They can rot us. They can, they can really shatter our confidence. And part of the necessity of, of making time to call upon God in the morning is to show ourselves to, to, to have that divine help, as we'll see later, the importance of divine aid to preserve us from things that may come and completely derail your life. The priority then is in the morning, isn't it? Should it not have the same in our lives? If I say nothing else, if I say nothing else, Christian, take that. Take that to heart. So Jesus began his day in prayer. Secondly, Jesus reflected on the will of God in prayer. He reflected on the will of God in prayer. from verse 4 through 6, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou heedest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. You see here an expansion on the language of the blessed man in the first psalm. The blessed man what, walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And so you, hear, you see here this, this, this pondering, this dwelling that in place, in prayer rather, there is this reflection on what's the will of God. So I have a few questions here as I read these verses. First of all, what does God delight in? What does God delight in? Verse 4. Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. So as he he comes in prayer and he reflects on God's will for the day, this is one of the thoughts. What what does he delight in? Well, I know he doesn't have pleasure in wickedness. It's in the negative, I get it. It's in the negative. But we need the negative as an instructive aspect to our learning as well, don't we? We need the negative framing of of things. And so here you have the psalmist express it in this way, and no doubt even true of our Lord in his life as well. Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. So he's thinking about what he delights in. Well, it's not wickedness. Not only ask the question, what does God delight in, but where does God dwell? Where does he dwell? Again, second part of verse 4. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all, workers of iniquity. So where does he dwell? Well, it's not where evil is. And the foolish have no place in the presence of God. So where you find the foolish and where you find evil, you will not find God. Not in his favorable presence. And so again, you're reflecting on this. Again, it's in the negative, but... Reflecting like, oh, I want God. I want His, Him to delight in me. I want to do what delights Him. I want to be where He is. I want to be where God dwells. Well, it's not with where there's evil, and it's not where the foolish stand. Again, Psalm 1, you hear it. The same ideas are being echoed through this language. So you have to think about that. Young person, older person, all of us here. The expressions of evil that surround us. The evil that permeates our day. The evil that surrounds our culture and is found in expressions all over the place. If we are preparing ourselves aright each morning, then there's a a recognition that evil doesn't dwell with God. But God's meant to dwell with me. I will be thy God and you shall be my people and I will walk in you and dwell in you. So you see these competing ideas that if if I'm truly a child of God and God's dwelling in me and that's the way it's meant to be, then I, I can't be where evil is expressed, where evil is exalted, where evil is given a pass. Again, you can't hide yourself from all forms of evil. Don't take it to extremes. We're not calling for monasticism here. But it is that desire to try to sanctify what God will not sanctify. To make good what God says is bad. Our Lord Jesus got up every morning and isolated himself, knowing that evil would surround him. It was all over the place. It was everywhere. So he's reflecting on what's God's will, because the will of man is going to press on me today. The will of the religious, the will of the irreligious, They're all gonna press their wills, their minds, their philosophies are gonna come and press into me, but what is the will of God? What does he delight in? Well it's not wickedness. Where does he dwell? It's not evil and foolishness. And the third question Who will God destroy? Verse six them that speak leasing or lying, falsehood. He destroys lying lips. God is a God of truth. And there are liars everywhere. Every man's a liar. And the Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. The man who thinks life is cheap, takes life in various ways. Maybe not by outright murder, but maybe even the killing of reputation, the destruction of that which is good, bloody men. And so our Lord, thinking upon this... Where's the judgment of God going to fall? Liars and bloody and deceitful men. Surrounded by such. It It didn't take long, did it? It did not take long in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ for people to desire to kill Him. All in the name of God, of course. Wasn't it? Trying to justify their wickedness. Trying to sanctify their motivations. You read there in John 5, that man is unable to walk, and he did so on the Sabbath day. In the response of our Lord Jesus Christ, they discern what he's saying. He makes himself equal with God, and they set about to kill him From that moment. Thirdly. Jesus prepared for worship by prayer. He prepared for worship by prayer. There's a certain sense in which this psalm is really appropriate for days of corporate worship, such as today. Verse 7, But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. So the morning prayers become even more important as we gather for worship. But you have to see it beyond that, don't you? I I know our Lord at times would go up to the temple and He would be surrounded by people who wanted Him dead. (laughs) I hope that's not the case when we gather here for worship where we're surrounded by bloody and deceitful men. I trust not. God spare us. There's a general application, of course, to all of this worship the Lord all the time. And so what do we see here? First of all, his attendance. His attendance. As he, he prepares for worship by prayer, there is his attendance. I will come into thy house. I will come. I'm going to do that. Now, th- this is being lost today. Now, I, I, I grant you, I, I, this is not something I need to harp on too much here. I think most here recognize in, a term, in, in terms of, of discipline that when you wake up, On the first day of the week, you're not contemplating whether or not to go to the house of God. I mean, if you're sick or some kind of providential hindrance, I get it. You're wondering, well, I was was sick a couple of days ago. Uh, Am I over it? Should I go? Maybe I'll still share it with someone. I, I get all of that. But what I'm talking about here is I think most of you, and if you're not there, I hope you get there, where when you wake up on the Lord's Day morning, both you and even what's communicated to your children is that this isn't optional. Right? You're, not, you're not figuring out, what, what will we do today? It's like, like, this is what you're going to do. The same way you, when you wake up on Monday and you go to work. and you don't, don't sit there and think about whether you go to work. <laughs> That's where you need to be. You get up and you go. You're not debating it. You, you just go. Same with school. Parents, of course, we have to sometimes deal with children a little bit this way and help them to see things like this. As they wake up on Monday morning or some other day Maybe you're doing a little work, you homeschool parents, you're doing a little work at a time when others are, are maybe off school and they see the kids out there playing or doing something else, and your kids are stuck inside and they're not wanting to be there. And you have to fight with them about what the right thing is to do. This is what we're going to do, it's not optional. Well, so it should be for worship. Our Lord Jesus, I mean, there, there was no, it wasn't an option. I will come. I will come into thy house. So this is his attendance. And again, I don't need to belabor this. May it ever be that we are people who, who prioritize. Not, oh, we didn't, I, didn't get the, I didn't get the grass mowed yesterday. So I, I, at the time people are coming over to see us in the afternoon, maybe I need to mow it before. No, that's, that's just, no, no. Let the grass be up to your knees. Get to the house of God. It's just not an option. His attendance, his appreciation in the multitude of thy mercy. In the multitude of thy mercy. I love this. Recognition of the mercy of God. Now, of course, in the way our Lord Jesus experienced mercy is different than ours, for he had no sin. Now, he still experienced mercy. There were forms of mercy that were common to all, and mercy that he experienced as well. But for us, thinking of us, how, how we experience it as well, coming into God's house in the multitude of thy mercy. We come into God's house because we recognize the bounty of God's mercy to us. Not coming in here simply, oh, I, I better go, I must go, I have to go. No, we're kind of bursting through the doors because, yes, I want to be there with God's people. God has been so merciful to me and I want to join my voice with them all. Sing praises to God. Express my thanksgiving. The multitude of mercy. Not coming in and looking across and seeing the shortcomings in our brethren and sisters. No. No, perish it. Let it die. Coming in in the multitude of thy mercy. What's it indicating? It is indicating for us, not for Christ, but for us. It's indicating pardon. Now our Lord Jesus could reflect upon the pardoning mercy of God and He could enter into the sympathy of that and recognize that and rejoice in that that God is pardoning. Though He needed not that pardon Himself. But we, being recipients of pardon, being those who have more sin than could ever be counted or numbered, and we multiply it every day and there's not a day that goes by where we avoid sin. And we're constantly heaping it upon ourselves and yet... And yet we come in and there isn't a big terrifying God at the door that says, you've, you've sinned too much this week. You've gone too far. Turn away. This is not the place for you. No, no, no. There's a God who, who stands over the place of worship with open arms and says, sinner, sinner, this is the place for you. Come in the multitude of mercy. Come here. This is where you belong. Appreciation. Appreciation. Thirdly, his apprehension. Apprehension, and in thy fear will I worship. In thy fear will I worship. And I talk about apprehension, I'm not talking about anxiety. I'm talking about his apprehension of who God is. His apprehension of the God that is to be worshipped. Because that apprehension of God, that recognition of his lofty, incomprehensible, elevated, beyond comprehension being his apprehension of that causes there to be this reverence in how he comes in. He's not walking in to worship casually. This is no casual endeavor. It's not casual. I want you to come here and enjoy being in God's house. I want you to love What happens here, I want you to value it above anything else you do at any time of your week. But I don't want that to mean that you come in in some low view of God. And it is to be grieved and to be a matter of repentance that the house of God has in some cases and instances turned into a kind of circus, a place of performance. In thy fear will I worship. In thy fear. Who is this God? Fourthly, Jesus showed his dependence on the Spirit through prayer. His dependence on the Spirit through prayer. Verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. There's two things here. Just to note very quickly, much could be said about the Spirit leading Christ. The Spirit led the Lord Jesus. And one of the instances many of you know, perhaps has already come into your mind, that as soon as he was baptized, as soon as he was set apart for public ministry, Luke records he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days by the devil. But that wasn't a once for all event where Christ was led on that occasion and no other occasion. It's put there for us so we see how he, the manner of his ministry. That every day was one of the leading of the Spirit of God, the Spirit constantly leading him. And even to the remarkable, the remarkable, and almost difficult to comprehend aspect of being led for the purpose of temptation. But he was constantly being led. And so he had the guidance of the Spirit. And he prayed over it, he desired it, he invited it. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness cause of mine enemies. I am surrounded by sinful men, wicked men. They're always pulling this way and that. Their influence is felt. But Make thy way straight before my face. This is, this is how you pray. This is why you come to God in the morning. Lead me, O Lord. You don't pray this at the end of the day, do you? You pray this at the beginning of the day. You pray at the start, at the head of your day. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness. There are forces out there. they are enemies, evildoers. They don't don't know your will. Make thy way straight before my face. Give me clarity in the decisions I make. So the guidance of the Spirit, the preservation of the Spirit is more the emphasis in in verse 9 as he recognizes there's no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness, their throat is an open sepulchre, they flatter with their tongue. There's all this this speech, and it's not faithful. And this Christ faced this, didn't he? He had those who came to him, sometimes, you know, good master. And we exalt him, rabbi. And they would come with, with language that would seem to show a, a, a modicum of respect, a sense of in which that they were maybe like one of his disciples. But they're coming with flattery. Their intention is to, to deceive. The desire is to entice him with questions, to catch him in his words, as the gospels record. And every day our Lord faced this. Every day he was confronted with avenues of attack and temptation. And he depends on the Spirit and his preservation. He needs to be kept. This is why he's asking for the Spirit to lead him and so on, because it's in this context of sin surrounding him. And flattery. He needs the Spirit to lead him, to preserve him, to guide and preserve, just like you do. You need the Spirit to guide you and preserve you. Every day. And fifthly, finally, Jesus anticipated righteous judgment in prayer. He anticipated righteous judgment in prayer. Verse 9. Or rather, verse, verse 10. Pardon me. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous with favour. Wilt thou compass him as with a shield? There is in this anticipation that Christ has of judgment to come, the destruction of the wicked. That's what verse 10 deals with. I'm not going to dwell on it since time is almost gone. and It's not the primary emphasis, but you see it. He, He anticipates what's going to happen to those who are evil. There's going to be destruction. They're going to fall by their own counsels. God's going to deal with them. So, he anticipates that destruction of the wicked. But then, the blessings of the righteous. The blessings of the righteous. Verse 11. Let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy. Because thou defendest them, let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. And so on and so forth. And these blessings. There's the blessings in their person. And the blessing of their protection, in their person and in their protection. Verse 11 deals with their person, right? How the blessings that are known within the person of the believer, within the being of the believer, unique to each and experienced by every believer, but then also you have the protection in verse 12. Just looking at the blessings in their person, let's consider what verse 11 tells us. It's marked by faith, isn't it? Is marked by faith. Because they're marked by faith. Let all those that put their trust in thee. That put their trust in thee. How do you gain this this privileged position? You have to believe. It's through faith. Not works. Not by any merit of your own. Not by family lineage. Not by the church you attend. It is faith. And our Lord Jesus then, as he, He prays blessings upon the righteous... They have become such. They're in this position because they trust in thee. Let all those that put their trust in thee. Child of God, is that where your trust is? Christ alone. Let it not be in your baptism. Let it not be in your membership of this church or any other. Marked by faith. Marked by joy. You see it? Verse 11. Those that trust in thee, rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy. The end of verse 10 again. Be joyful in thee. So there's an emphasis here. Rejoice, shout for joy, joyful in thee. So they're marked by joy. They rejoice. <laughs> that, that joy enables them to shout for joy. Right? And there are occasions for that. Isn't there real expressions of joy? I'm not saying we shout like, or, you know, crazy people or anything. But we give, we give, we give language to it. It, it. it kind of comes out of us right? It is a little bit of an irritation to me when we can, some at least, can watch certain sports and look, there's a place for watching sports. I'm not like anti-sports and so on to the point that everyone should abandon it. But, but you see the kind of enthusiasm that, that your, your college one or whatever. Or they, like, you see this, they're bursting with enthusiasm. And you you see it in social media where people, yeah, our team won. and it's expression. I'm thinking, okay, I, I'm glad you, you I have no problem with that. I, I appreciate that there's a place for that. But where then is the, the shouts for joy in the Lord? Post something on the on a Monday saying, praise God! I was with God's people yesterday, it was great, <laughs> just expressions expressions of joy. Shout for joy, child of God. Are, 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 is your forgiveness somewhat limited, is it? Are you only partially forgiven? Or are you entirely forgiven? Are you waiting for some blessing that's not already yours in Christ? Or is it all yours in Christ? What more are you waiting for? Yes, there's still things to come to pass. The full consummation of our salvation still awaits. But it's all laid up for us. We're seated. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Christ. And we are made to be co-heirs, and we are kings and priests unto God. What more could we want? Let us shout for joy and be joyful in thee. Because it's not just some empty joy, is it? We're joyful in Him. And it's marked by love, isn't it? Marked by love. They love thy name. Them also that love thy name. They love. Do you love it? You understand when we sing how sweet the sound of Jesus' name. How sweet that is in a believer's ear. There's a certain because of what it communicates, thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. I need to tie up, time is gone. My my focus, though I've taken the whole psalm here, I hope the context is helpful, but the focus is the importance then of morning prayer. Because all of this pivots on that, doesn't it? All this pivots on that. You head out every day surrounded by wicked people and wicked influences. And our Lord Jesus got himself into the place of prayer in the morning, sometimes a great while before day. And he did that because of The wickedness and the evil that surrounded him. Morning prayer is a thermometer of our spiritual state. It really is. A new believer often feels its importance. But as time goes on, we can adopt a wicked self-sufficiency that neglects morning prayer and reveals that there has become or has developed a distance between us and God. And I want, and this will be my final remark, I want to leave with you an extended quote from Spurgeon. Because in dealing with how we can go adrift from God, well, you'll hear his remarks, and they tie in well to this psalm, though he was not preaching from this psalm. When you were first converted, you felt afraid to put one foot down before another for fear you should go astray. You scarcely ever ventured from your house without an anxiety to be kept by the grace of God. You used to pray in the morning with great ardor and earnestness that not a thought might be awry, nor one single word amiss. And when business was over at night, you felt uneasy, lest anything, however trivial, you might have injured your profession and grieved the Spirit of God. Again, some of you know what I'm talking about here, what Spurgeon's dealing with. You know that spirit, that, this, this frame. He goes on to say, well, do I recollect when I was the subject of excessive tenderness? Some people call it morbid sensibility. How I shuddered and shivered at the very thought of sin, which then appeared exceeding sinful. I would to God I could always feel as I then did. Oh, believer, your newborn character was then white as a lily and the smallest grain of dust would show upon it. Your life was bright and shining and the least speck could be discovered and you yourself were like the sensitive plant. The slightest touch of sin sent a thrill of horror through every fiber of your soul. But it is not so now. At least not to the same admirable degree. Maybe you can hear talk to which formerly you would have closed your ears. You can tolerate sins which once you would have shunned as though they were deadly serpents. Your walk is somewhat careless now. Great sins you avoid right heedfully, but secret sin gives you little or no concern. The departure of that blessed sensibility of soul which marks the new birth is one very serious mark of declension. It may not seem a great evil to have less abhorrence of evil, but this truly is the egg from which the worst mischief may come. Hear me attentively, O my brother, to whom this message is directed, as I rebuke you in the words of the Savior in Revelation. Nevertheless, I have something against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Christian, reclaim, if necessary, the mourning territory. May God enable us all. Let's pray. I ask you not to make vows you cannot keep, but I do plead with you, Christian, to be sober before you leave this place, and humbly seek from God the strength to put first things first tomorrow. Tomorrow. O God, we pray, make us more like the Lord Jesus. We take his name, but we are so little like him. We aspire to please thee, yet we depart so frequently. O grant us Thy preserving grace impart to us the strength that we need. Make this people a people who do know their God. I beg of thee, O God, that in this place there will be a true knowledge of the holy and the frequent prayer of the Apostle Paul that I may know him Do this work, O God. Extend Thy mercy. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with every child of God now and evermore. Amen.